Uh, next Sunday, I, I think I forgot to mention this, uh, next Sunday uh, at 5 o'clock, we'll be having our building dedication service. So uh, be a time where we'll invite our Korean congregation and English congregation and our children's ministry to, to join us together. Um, we're going to worship. I'll be preaching the word. We'll uh, hear, hear testimony from one of our um, uh, folks who've been working on this building uh, committee for a long time, and, and we'll just celebrate the faithfulness of God. There's going to be a, a photo booth and all kinds of cool things going on. So uh, next week, fri- uh, 5 o'clock, Sunday, uh, we will still have our worship service in here. Um, there's a chance we'll be able to get... Uh, uh, there's a chance that next Sunday might be the last Sunday we're in here, but there's also a chance that we may have one more uh, Sunday depending on, on how things go. So uh, be in prayer for that. That would be awesome. We are um, going to continue to look at promises, but we're in a particular season of the, of the church calendar uh, called Lent. Um, you see up there promises for Lent. Lent um, is basically the, the, that six-week period, 40 days uh, between Ash Wednesday and Holy Week, uh, the Saturday of Holy Week doesn't include the Sundays because Sundays are you know, meant to be little uh, Easter celebrations. And so uh, people who are fasting from different things uh, may uh, sometimes choose to abstain from fasting on, on Sundays throughout Lent. But the whole purpose is it's almost like, you know, we did our, at church yesterday, we did spring cleaning to just kind of clean out some of the things that we don't need and, and to, to cre- uh, remove clutter and, and just create um, a better place. Uh, that's kind of what Lent is doing. It's spring cleaning. As we examine our hearts, we uh, surrender things to God. We realize, man, I've accumulated all this junk in my heart, uh, and I want to lay that down before the Lord God. And, you know, this is day five, I think, of, of Lent, if you're counting Sundays. And um, it's been, for me, it's been such a good thing. I realize there's a, a lot of things that I give up that are difficult, but they're not really that significant. Things like soda and things like, you know, uh, basically soda. But this year I decided I want to, you know, I want to do something that's really going to like, help me to get closer to God. You know, as I, I read my Bible, I pray every day and things like that. But uh, I said, you know, I want to give up this bad habit of, it's not even a habit, it's just a character flaw that I have of complaining and grumbling and just getting upset at things. And so I said, God, I want to give that to you. I want to be more thankful. I want to be thankful. I want to be like, ah, thank you, God, for all. I've got so much. My life is so blessed up more than messed up, but I focus on the mess ups rather than the blessings. And, and so I said, I want to be more thankful. And it's been really good for me. Uh, it's been really good. In fact, I feel like, you know, uh, yeah, I just feel like God is working in my heart. So I want to encourage you, man, let's, let's, let's move together. Let's journey together through Lent. And the ultimate purpose as we get to uh, that Holy Week is to see, man, Jesus died for me, because I'm so messed up, because I complain all the time, I grumble all the time, I, I, uh, I, I'm prideful all the time, and I seek out other things besides Jesus, and, and man, my life is so filled with all these other things, and I just want to love Jesus more. That's the whole intent. So as we walk towards Lent, what I want to do on Sunday mornings over the next six weeks is to give some promises that are focused on this particular season that will help us to realize, man, God is faithful and he's awesome. We've been seeing this for like eight weeks before. But during this particularly important season, I want to help us to kind of hone in and, and focus on what the Lord might be wanting to say to us during this time. Because the reality, I think many people, most people, I would say, in the world would believe that there is this historical man named Jesus. He lived, he died, crucified on a cross. 
I think most people would say, yeah, that's historical fact. But many people would say, it's just kind of like, I mean, I know Abraham Lincoln died in a bloody death at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. I know that John F. Kennedy was shot in, in Dallas, Texas, and that's sad, and we remember those days. But what does that have to do with my life? I think a lot of people, maybe not you, maybe not churchgoers, but a lot of people feel like, what does that have to do with my life? What's the big deal about this? Why is it that that week in human history represents the most significant and life-changing, history-making, world-shaking, life-altering week in all of history. Why is that? I want to march towards that and and look at that today. Today, I want to begin by saying, why did Jesus have to die? Uh, Yeah, everyone has to, well, we can ask another question. Why does everyone have to die for that matter? And we're going to look at all of these things, some major questions today. But I want to look today at the very first promise that God gave to us in Scripture. And my hope is that through this time, we can see, man, God is faithful to his promise, and we can trust him, and we can trust his word. We're going to look at Genesis 3. The first promise actually comes in chapter 3, verse 15. But in order to get there, we have to kind of march through chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapters, uh, verses 1 through 14 in chapter 3. So Genesis 1 and 2 talk about the creation of the world, why this world is the way that it is, how God originally created, what God's heart and what God's intent was. I, on my phone, on my phone, I've got this app that maybe a lot of parents do. It's a little Bible app uh, for children. And so, you know, you push this button and it reads these Bible stories out loud to you. And there's questions and you have to answer them. And, and if you answer them, you get a star. And once you get three stars, something cool happens to you. And so I, 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 re, I do this every night with, with Elijah. Uh, when I, every night I put him to sleep when I'm home. And so uh, the Genesis 1, the creation account is really cool. And it just talks about how God made the stars and the lights and all of these things. And at the end of each day, uh, the, uh, the, the story goes, day one, done. That's how it says. It's really fun. Day two, done. Day three, done. And, and Elijah thinks it's so funny. He loves it. And so I, I would hear him sometimes. He's waiting for me to come into his room to read. And he's just sitting on the bed. And he's like, day four, done. And he's just like saying it to himself. He thinks it's so funny. What the children's Bible says, day one, done. Day two, done. The adult Bible says, day one is good. Day two, it was good. Every day God creates. And he's like, I've, I'm not an artistic person, so I've never like painted something and stepped back and looked at it and said, mm, that's really good. I've never, I've never done that before. I've never made a Lego sculpture or anything or put together any kind of woodwork, uh, Ikea thing even, and looked back and said, well, one time I did with, with like uh, Elisa's little dollhouse or something or uh, Manny's I made, and I looked back and said, Daddy did a pretty good job. It only took like eight hours, but <laughs> this is pretty good. So God creates the world, and he looks at all of it, and he steps back, and he says, it's good. This is great. And we see in the Garden of Eden the way that God originally intended life to be. Everything was good. It's a beautiful world where man and woman are not arguing with each other. They understand each other. There's no need for premarital counseling. Adam and Eve are there and they're plopped into the garden. And and Adam says, hello. And she says, stop. You need to say no more. (laughs) But he said, let me finish my song. Like you are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and inspired by Jerry Maguire. He says, you complete me. And she says, I said, hush, you had me at hello. And so they start, this is a match made in heaven. She's like, look, Adam, look at all of these things around, man. You're so different. You understand me. All these other, other guys are like animals, but look at you. You're different. 
and they get together, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You can read all these jokes online, okay? So, oh, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, I love you, Adam, and I love you, Eve, and this is the match, a perfect match made by the eternal matchmaker. Everything is good. The food that they ate, Eve didn't have to worry. Oh, my goodness, I think it m- might make me look funny. No, it's all, everything was good. It was like a, a hipster's dream, the Garden of Eden. It was, everything was fresh, not frozen. No preservatives, local, organic, sustainable, no wrappers, nothing like that. Everything was great. Our skin was beautiful, no signs of aging, no need for rodan and fields, no need for any of this stuff. Life was good. Life was perfect. Everything was the way that it was meant to be. And at the end of it all, God looks and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And the cherry on top was that man and woman were together. They understood each other. The weather was perfect. They walked with God. They were not afraid. They knew intimacy with God. They could talk with him. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, an ominous tone begins to invade the pages of Scripture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. If God's intent was that the world would be that good and so amazing, then why is this world a far cry from what we see in the pages of Scripture? Because there was an infernal enemy that Revelation 12.9 says, the serpent is Satan. The first thing that we see here as we kind of ramp up to God's first promise, the first thing that we see is that disobedience to God, but disobedience led to devastation, devastated the world that God created good. Okay, disobedience devastates the world. So here comes Satan, and we, we see, like, this is huge, right? huge stuff. Because we look around our world, and we realize, man, our world is definitely not like that. It's not like that. It tells us why. Verse 1, uh, Satan comes in, and he starts talking to Eve, Adam was supposed to be the protector, the helper. Love is patient, love is kind, love never fails. But here, Adam fails, abdicates his responsibility. And so the serpent comes. We see a couple things here in Genesis chapter 3. We could, we could go on and on and on for hours about this, but we're not going to. Two things that we see here, particularly in Genesis chapter 3, we see the anatomy of sin and how comprehensive the devastation of sin is in our world. Look at what Satan does, and this is probably how... This is how all of us are tricked into temptation and into sin. He says in, in, to the woman in verse 1, did God really say you must not eat? Okay, the first thing he says is, did God really say? The first step in the anatomy of sin is there's doubt created in our minds. Did God really say that? Did he really say that you shouldn't ignore your parents? Did God really say that you got to go to church every Sunday? Did God really say that it's that bad to sleep with someone even though you're not married with them? Did God really say that? Begins to put doubt in the mind of Eve. And then he goes on. What did he? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. So not only is there doubt, but did God really say that? In chapter 2, verse 16, God says, you may eat from every tree in the garden except for the one. You can eat from every tree. You have a buffet of trees except for this one, which is off limits. But Satan says, did he say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So here, after there's doubt, there's a distortion. He distorts 
the word of God. And he twists the word of God to make it more restrictive to say, you know what, God, he's so mean. You got all these trees. Did God really say you can't eat from any of them? And then he goes on and he says at the, at the end of, what is this, verse 2, um, and you must not touch it. Right? This is what Eve says. So she takes what God says and she takes it to make it, again, more restrictive than it really is. He, she said, no, 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 God didn't say that. He said you must not eat from it and you must not touch it or you will die. So there's doubt and then there's a distortion of the word of God. And so she begins to doubt, is God really for me? Verse 4, you will not surely die. Boy, this is huge. And maybe this is where some of us trip and fall. There's a denial of the consequences of sin. It's not that bad. What are the chances? Nobody will ever know. Everybody else is doing it. If you mess up, hey, at least everybody else messed up with you. There's a denial of the consequences of sin that causes us to feel like, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not so bad after all. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe a little bit of looking isn't too bad. Maybe a little bit of touching isn't so bad. Maybe just one smoke, one joint, one hit isn't too bad. Maybe it's not that bad. Hey, maybe it'll be okay. And then he goes on and Verse 4, he says, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. There's a deception of the benefits of sin. Oh, it's going to make you feel so good. Forbidden fruit always tastes a little bit better, doesn't it? Begins to, he begins to minimize the consequences and to seemingly maximize the benefits. Everybody will love you if you do this. Everybody will applaud you if you do this. You will become so great. People will respect you. The guys will love you. The girls will adore you. You will be the praise of every person at school. You will be at the, you'll make it to, to the top of the ladder, whatever it is. And then in verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, then desire gives birth. I want that. I know God said no, but I want it. I know I shouldn't do it, but I want it. I know that it's bad for me, but I want it. I know that there's going to be, I'm going to have to deal with it, but I want it. I know that the pain of sin is long-lasting, the pleasure is short-lasting, but I'm going to deal with it because I desire that thing. That desire leads to the decision, and she ate it. That decision, the most momentous decision that the world has ever known, far greater than any decision that LeBron James could ever make. LeBron James, with his decision, jacked up a city, but with their choice, they jacked up the world. And everything was different because of it. Not only did she do it herself, she gave it to her husband, and he, hey, fine, you did it, I'll do it too. He ate it also. And from there... The world as we know it was completely shattered and devastated. The image of God cracked. We look at each other. We don't see God anymore. We look at each other and we objectify one another. We judge one another. We see anything but what God desires for us to see in each other. Everything was ruined because of the disobedience against God. 
Out of this disobedience came all kinds of evil. Scientists have talked about this, and scientists are smart. They studied scripture, and here's what they said. <laughs> and I'm not, this is unbiased because I'm a, I'm a Mac user. I've been using Mac for years. I've got an iPhone. I've got an iPad. Uh, our family is built on Macs. But the first computer in the Bible was an Apple. <laughs> it was an Apple. It promised so much. It was all this hype around it. The problem was, even though they said this is going to be everything that you want it to be, the problem was it wasn't meant for all of that. It couldn't handle it. And so one byte, not one gigabyte, not one terabyte, but one byte, and the whole thing crashed. And a virus was introduced into the world's ecosystem. A Trojan came in, and out of that horse came every evil, anger, racism, prejudice, every kind of evil that you could ever imagine, sickness, right? injustice, the New England Patriots, everything. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> Holy cow. Sorry. Whew. Someone sabotaged my notes. But all kinds of evil. <laughs> Judgment, oh, genocide, you name it, all of these things. And the worst thing to come out of that Trojan horse was death. The comprehensive destruction of the plan of God for our world. And you look at how this isolates and what this does at a social, social level. Starting in verse 7, it, uh, starting in verse 8, it talks about what happened. Starting in verse 7, it says they were, their eyes were open and they realized they were naked. And then they hear God, verse 10, and they were afraid, so they hide. Shame is introduced into the world. Fear is introduced in the world. That, those two things alone, are they not the cause of so much of the breakdown of relationships in society? I'm afraid. I'm ashamed. I run away. I hide. And because I hide, I cannot let you see into me. And because you cannot see into me, we cannot have intimacy. This is what happens when shame comes into our world. There's fear. There's shame. There's hiding. There's all kinds of evil. And it destroys the very fabric of relationship because everything in our world is about relationships. First with God and then with each other. All of this has become shattered like a glass that was meant to be together. Cracks and fissures and and shards everywhere. This is the image of God in people. And when God calls Adam to count, Adam, what happened? What should, God, what should Adam have said? Uh, verse 11, he said, uh, well, verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? They're both hiding. He says, what is this you have done? And then they, they go on and on in this conversation. What should Adam have said when God said, what'd you do? But God, I've sinned, and I'm sorry. But what does he say? This is almost funny. I mean, this is, again, premarital counseling 101. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me. God, you know how it is when women get hungry and about food. You know how it is. I couldn't help it. Man, she was hangry. I couldn't do anything about it. The woman. But he doesn't just blame her. He says, the woman you put here with me. God, ultimately, it's your fault. It's your bad. You could have given me a better woman. She jacked up. She could have made a better choice, but the woman you put here with me, and this is what we do. We blame other people. We blame religion. We blame God. 
comprehensively, our world is broken. You think, why? What was the cause of the Holocaust? What was the cause of, of genocide? What's the cause of racial infighting? It's because there's shame, there's fear, there's blame. Whose fault is it? We all know the answer. It's not mine. It's their fault. It's somebody else's fault. The Republicans blame the Democrats. Democrats blame the Republicans. It's always their fault because we, from the beginning of time, jumped in and started playing this blame game. But there's no winner in this game. What God wanted Adam to say was, here I am, God. I've blown it. From there, grace could have come. But because it didn't, it was delayed. This is what Lent is about, guys. It's about understanding. I can't run from God. I can't hide behind no elephant. I can't hide behind a rhinoceros. God sees. He says, where are you? Not because he can't see, but because he wants us to admit where we are. Not physically, because he knows that but at a heart level. Where are you? The question he asks is, where are you? Today, day five of Lent, where's your heart? Where are you spiritually? Where are you at, a, at an existential level as it relates to your relationship with God and with each other? Where are, where are you? The first thing we see is disobedience to God devastated the world that God made good. The second thing here we see, we introduce this, this concept of spiritual battle. You are involved in a war that's been going on for all of history. You're involved in a war that's been going on for all of history. Where did this come from? If, if we're in, in complete and perfect relationship with God, everything we have is, is, is there, we're completely satisfied, then where does even the notion of sin come in? It says in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than all the others. This is why, man, I, I get so angry when I think about Satan. I used to sing this song when I was little. Maybe you used to sing it too. The devil and I, we both agree. I hate him and he hates me. I, I guess the one thing we can agree on. Like I hate Satan. I, I, remember, well, I remember feeling this like so viscerally and so deeply uh, years ago when uh, one, of my, one of my friends tried to commit suicide. Man, this was a dark, it was a dark period. Um, and I remember thinking like all of the things that, the, that this person was saying about why they're trying to do and all these things. And I just remember said, man, Satan has got such a, 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 a bug in, in that person's ear. And I was so angry about it. I think that's ultimately what Jesus was angry about. In John eleven thirty five. 35, it says Jesus wept. He's not weeping because Lazarus died. He's weeping because Mary is weeping. And because he sees the devastation that sin and Satan has brought into this world. He knew that Lazarus was going to rise. He was going to do that. That's why he went four days later. He's angry because he hates the things that Satan has done. First John, I think, 3, 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's what Jesus is about. The devil and I, we both agree. I hate him and he hates me. And there's been this battle going on from the beginning of time. Why? Doesn't say much here, but if you read 2 Peter 2, 4, if you read Jude uh, verse 6, okay, Jude chapter 1, verse 6, and again, Revelation 12, 9, it says this serpent is Satan. And Satan and a bunch of angels were hobnobbing in heaven with God. And at some point, there was this insurrection in the heavens where Satan was not okay just being where he is to have that authority, have that power. And he wanted more, and he tried to throw a coup to impeach God, to overthrow God so that Satan could be God. But it failed. And every time we see throughout Scripture the work of the enemy, one of the things that we see very clearly is that he always needs the permission of God in order to move forward. You remember in Job chapter 1, what does he say? He asked God, can you 
allow me to afflict Job. He's the best, but let me, let me afflict him to test him. And God says, okay. So Satan had a field day with Job, but God permitted it because there was a deeper purpose for it. Same thing. Jesus says to Peter, 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 Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fall. Every time Satan tries to do something, it's not because God can't stop it. He says, there's a good purpose for which I'm allowing this to happen. And so in some whatever reason, God allows the fall of Satan and his angels. And from there, this cosmic conflict has been in full effect. And Satan has been fighting against God. Because Satan couldn't overcome God, he goes after the ones that God loves. You and me. I don't know if you remember a boxer named Mike Tyson. Right? And his, he became champion of the world at like 19 or 20, some young age. He was uh, violent, beaten, uh, abused and stuff as a kid in New York. And so he grew up angry. So whenever he'd get in the ring, he would just like destroy people. Right? 30 seconds, 50 seconds, 90 seconds. After this one fight, he, he knocked this dude out in like 72 seconds. He was like, he was like in this rage and this <clears throat> angry excitement. And uh, he was just like talking about, you know, it's nonsensical stuff. You can listen to it. It's really funny. Google, uh, I'll tell you what to Google in a sec. But he said something like, my style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> kind of a boxer talks like that. And then he said about his next opponent, a guy named Lennox Lewis. He says, I'm going to destroy Lennox Lewis thinks he's bad. I'm going to destroy him. And then he said, I'm going to eat his children. <laughs> what? So you can Google Mike Tyson, eat his children. You watch this, this video, it's crazy. Why does he want to eat? What did Lennox Lewis' children do to Mike Tyson? Nothing. But because of the hatred towards Lennox Lewis, he's threatening his children. This is what Satan was doing. Like we can actually do it. We're not like these like big shots. Oh, we're so awesome. No, it's because we're God's kids. That gives us worth. Doesn't matter how great you are, how not great you think you are, be, by virtue of the fact that you're gods, you have utmost worth and dignity. And so Satan attacks the children of God in his MO in Mark chapter 5. I, I said this, but this is a crazy passage in uh, Mark's gospel. Matthew 8, I think, records it also. Mark 5, Matthew 8, where Jesus is in this village. Um, man, I forget what, what, I think it's called the Decapolis. I forget what, what exactly it was. But uh, Jesus is hanging out with some people and there's this demon-possessed dude, right? And it's got all these demons in it. And Jesus says, come out, demons. And they're like freaking out. They're flipping out. They're scared because Jesus is their master and they need to, uh, they need to do, do what he says. But they plead with him. And this weird thing, with this weird dialogue where they say, okay, we're going to leave, but will you let us go into these pigs? Do you remember this? Like weird stuff. Can, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus says, all right, go into the pigs. So the demons possess these pigs, and these pigs start going crazy, and they run off a cliff, and they fall off the cliff to their demise. And then you go into the next <laughs> passage in the biography of Jesus. What in the world is that all about? Why did, first of all, why did they want to go into the pigs? Second of all, why did Jesus let them? Because Jesus was teaching them something. What is he teaching them? Teaching them that there's two kingdoms, kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And the very nature of the kingdom of darkness is to destroy. 
And so they said, if we can't destroy this man, let us destroy these pigs and this livelihood for this village who then plead for Jesus to leave because they've just lost all of their economy with the pigs. But the point that Jesus is making is you've got to understand You think that you can mess around with these demonic things. You think you can mess around with witchcraft and Ouija boards and sorcery. No, the nature of the devil is to destroy and to destroy the children of God. He will whatever foothold he can. It's just a little bit of just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But through these doubts, deception, distortion of the word of God, the blowing up of the benefits and the minimizing of the consequences, Satan's aim is to destroy us. That's what he wants. He wants to eat your children. (laughs) But he wants to destroy us. Because we're children of God. And, he wants to, and if he can't mess with you, if he can't mess with me, then he'll certainly try to mess with our children. So we've got to pray just to make it today. We gotta pray. We have to, that's why we pray. The weapons we fight with are not normal weapons, spiritual weapons. Right? We fight, we pray, we read the word of God, we fast, we seek the face of God. Because from this point on, God says, all right, you go mess with my kids, then I'm going to mess with you. In chapter 15, and verse 15, he begins the pronouncement, this threefold pronouncement of a curse. This is what he says in, in verse 15, speaking to Satan. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity literally means there's hostility, there's hatred, there's war. He says, from this point forward, there are going to be two lines that run throughout history. There's going to be those who have enmity against God and enmity against Satan. It's only two sides. And the question that, that we asked this morning is, whose side are you on? Like, let's be honest here. There, he, there's only two sides. And if you have not faced Satan, if you haven't come face to face with him, then you're probably going in the same direction as him. There's only two sides. And people used to think, you know what? Oh, man, my Christian life is so hard. I'm being attacked by, by Satan. I must not be doing something right. No, if you're being attacked by Satan, it means you're on the right because there's only two teams. There's only two sides. Enmity between you and the woman. What God is doing here in this pronouncement of a curse is he's giving us just a powerful act of grace to the woman. What is he doing? Then I'm going to put this barrier between you and the one who wants to destroy you. Here's what. The lover of her soul put enmity between her and the destroyer of her soul. Here's why. Because they were too friendly with each other. Because you guys are friends. If you, it's like your friend saying to you, about, oh, I'm about to date this, date this girl and everybody knows she's trouble, but nobody wants to say anything to you. And then one friend says, hey, you know what? Uh, you can't. You can't date this person because here's why. They've done this and this and this and this and you, you, you shouldn't be dating that person. That person is putting enmity between you and the person that you like because they know that if you become friendly with them, they're going to destroy you. That's what God is doing. It's the grace of God to put enmity, hostility, warfare between the one who wants to destroy Eve and her so that this wall goes up so that she does not become chummy-chummy with sin. And again, the question that I want to ask you today is, is there evidence in your life that there's enmity between Satan and you? Because if there's not, then at best you are spiritually ill and at worst you're spiritually walking with the devil. 
I'm not, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. I'm not overstating it. God is saying there's only two teams here. There's only two sides here. There's your either hatred towards God or hatred towards Satan. Either Satan hates you or it's the other way. So what's the deal? Not, I'm, I'm not asking, do you call yourself a Christian? I'm not saying, do you go to church? I'm not saying, do you serve church? Do you go to house church? I'm saying, is there evidence in your life that there's enmity between you and the destroyer of your soul? How do you know? I think one way is, man, what do you do when you hear the word of God? What do you do when you, when you sing songs of praise and worship? Does your heart move to want to live in obedience to God? Do you, do you grieve over the sin that you've committed that hurts God? Do you struggle against it? Sometimes people say to me, hey, you know what, Pastor Yeah, I'm struggling with sin. I said, are you really struggling with sin? What does that mean? Like I get tempted to give in to these things and I don't want to do it, but I keep on falling. I say, if there's a genuine struggle, like you want to overcome and you fight against it, but you give in to sin, that evidence of struggle is evidence of the fact that you have the spirit of God living in you. There's enmity between you and Satan. But if you don't struggle, temptation comes, all right, I'll do it. Hey, then maybe there's no Holy Spirit living in you. Maybe you're not a child of God. I don't want to misrepresent us and and say, yeah, we're all Christians because we love each other and and you gave sacrificially to our church and all these things. We have to diagnose according to the word of God that there's only two sides. Enmity between you and God. Enmity between you and Satan. It says between your offspring and hers. So the seed of the woman, the seed of the one who wants to honor God and the seed of the serpent running throughout history. And so here's this cosmic battle going on and we've been in it. We've been drafted into it. We've been enlisted into it from the beginning of human history. This battle is going on. That's why as Christian life is going to be hard. We're in a spiritual battle with an enemy that wants to destroy us. If it's not hard, well, I think it ought to be because there's an infernal enemy who wants to destroy our souls. It's the second thing that we see. The last thing we see then, and we're going to get to, 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 the, to the massive promise here. God promises to defeat the enemy and to redeem the world. So all of a sudden, all of these things happen. And then in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he rises up at the end and there's this amazing promise. And here we see the very first proclamation of the gospel. You ever go on Jeopardy, and they, uh, Alex Trebek says, the first, uh, the, the passage of Scripture where the first gospel is presented, you would ring in and you would say, uh, yeah, David, uh, what is Genesis 3.15? Right, you got it. So here it is. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Veiled, though it may be, God is saying, I'm going to send somebody. It's going to crush the head of this serpent. Yeah, you're going to bite his heel. You're going to, you're, what does it say? You will strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head with that very heel that you wound. It's interesting because when you ask people, <laughs> uh, if I did a poll of, you know, 100, however many of us are in here, what's the most pain you've ever experienced in your life? Like the physical pain that you felt in your life. Maybe uh, some of our women would say, oh, easily, pregnancy, giving birth, oh my gosh, you know, the hardest thing. Maybe some of the guys would say, oh, one day I had a cold, and it was like, oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, 
<laughs> you know this, right? Man cold is different from a woman cold, right? This is man cold is debilitating. He can't do anything. Out of work for six days. You understand this. Maybe, no, but to be serious, uh, maybe some of our men would say, oh, yeah, kidney stones, oh, appendicitis, oh, this is awful. Uh, but one of, uh, one of the things that I've talked to a couple people, they said, and, and one of our brothers uh, had this recently, uh, they said the worst pain they've ever experienced is when their Achilles heel was snapped. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but uh, some people swear it's the worst pain they've ever felt in their life before. But here's the thing. If I ask a bunch of people that question, what's the worst pain? They might say, oh, Achilles heel. I promise you that I will never ask someone that question and their response be, yeah, when I was eight years old, someone crushed my head. Why? (laughs) (laughs) If your head gets crushed, you don't live to tell about it, right? At least you could live to tell about an Achilles heel being being struck, but uh, my head was crushed and, hey, I'm still alive. No, why does your head look like that? No, it doesn't happen like that. Your head gets crushed. You're dead. It's over. Here's what he's saying. You're going you're gonna to inflict great pain, but the very source of pain that you inflict is from that place that your defeat is going to be sealed. Oh, we know the answer to who this person is. Who is this? Oh, you know, Eve didn't know. She thought me. Uh, boop, here comes Cain and Abel. Hey, is it going to be Cain? Is it going to be Abel? One of the, oh, Cain killed Abel. Guess it's not going to be Abel. It's not going to be Cain because Cain was a bad one. He's the one who killed. It can't be. He can't be the deliverer. Who's it going to be? Pops out another baby, Seth. Maybe Seth will be it, but then Seth wasn't in. And on and on and on it goes. And then who's it going to be? We know because we just sang it today. Jesus, only Jesus. That's the answer. But long before Jesus ever came on the scene, God said, I'm going to send a deliverer. I'm going to send a deliverer. Let me, let's talk about how powerful this is. It, look at the language that he uses in verse 15 between your offspring and hers. This is the, this is the language of there's the seed of the woman. Literally, offspring means seed of the woman, the seed of, ser- of the serpent. It's very interesting language. Constant talk about the seed of the woman in the language of Genesis. In the original text, it's, it's very powerful. Why? It's interesting. Right? Tim Keller cites uh, Robert Alter. Robert Alter writes this book um, about the art of biblical narrative and did this commentary about Genesis. But he says, you never hear, and, and you probably know this if you've been around or you study the Bible, ancient genealogies will never trace a genealogy through the seed of the woman. Right? It's always he begat, he begat him, and he begat him, and he begat him, and all of these begats. The only time in the ancient world you ever see a genealogy that includes a woman is in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, where he talks about the fact that I included them purposely to show that I treat women differently. And in fact, they're shady women also, and I treat them differently because they're the ones I want identifying, I identify with to be my family. This is who I want in my family. But you never have in the ancient world a woman in the genealogy. Highly patriarchal society, misogynistic even. And so it was always the seed of a man. Why is it then that he talks about the seed of the woman? Because Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 tells us, Behold, here will be the sign of Christmas. Here will be a sign that God is going to be faithful. A virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and you'll call him Emmanuel. 
Here's what he's saying. Because there's only one person who's ever been born in this world who was born apart from the agency of a man who will never say that he's the seed of a man because it was the Holy Spirit who came upon the Virgin Mary and through that woman would come the Savior of the world. You don't believe me? It's, it's interesting. Here's another interesting thing. The clearest New Testament parallel to Genesis. Right? How does Genesis 1-1 begin? In the beginning, God. And <clears throat> the clearest New Testament parallel that we have is the Gospel of John. It says, in the beginning was the Word. He's equating these two things together. He's saying, the person I'm talking about is the ushering in of a new creation the way that it was originally meant to be. Who is that person? You remember in John chapter 2, Jesus is hanging out at the wedding in Cana. The wine runs out. And what does she, mom, say? Jesus, do something. The wine ran out. Go do something. And what does Jesus say? You remember this, right? Because he's not a southern boy. What does Jesus say? He says, dear woman. Dear woman, why do you involve me in this? The last sign that Jesus would do when he's at the cross, John 19, 26, what did Jesus say? He says he looked at John and he looked at his mother and he would give them to each other. And what did he say? He said, dear woman, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. What kind of a son talks like that to his mom? That was me. I'd be saying, mom, here. (laughs) And here, mom. Dear woman, why? What kind of a person speaks like that? Only a person who wants to make it unmistakably clear that not only is he born of that woman, but he's the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is unequivocally, undeniably saying, I am the promised one. I'm going to hang on this cross and on this cross, my heel will be struck, but it's through the very cross that I will crush the head of Satan. The cross meant to kill is our victory. That's what Jesus is saying. Galatians 4, 4, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law that he might redeem those under the law. Here's what Adam should have said. Not, oh, man, God, this this woman, she jacked it up, and you messed it up because you should have given me a better version of the woman. He should have said, I've sinned, and I've fallen, and I need your help. Because had he done so, he would have experienced the grace that was available to those who believe and repent. This is what Lent is about, guys. Here's where many of us are. Where are you? You know what? Uh, It's not that bad. You know, the reason I fell was because of him, because of my friends, because of her, because God, you made me this way. Man, if I hadn't been in this family, if I hadn't been in this city, if I hadn't been in this school, if I hadn't been in this job, you gave me this job, God. No, 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 no. Think just all we need to do is say, God, I've messed up. I need a savior. I need a savior. And you who said, if you believe in me, you'll have life everlasting. Be brought into the family of God. Whose side are you on? Not because where you go to church, not because of what you do on Sunday mornings, not because of your morality, but it's based on what you do with your sin and what you do with the promised child, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
As we're about to come to this table of God's grace, and grace can only come to those who admit their need for it. Is there sin that is in your life that you have not confessed before the Lord? Have you disobeyed in some way that has caused your relationship with God and your relationship with others to have been devastated and hurt because of choices, sinful choices that you've made? That we can, and we can deny it, we can blame other people, we can run and hide all we want, but as long as, we, as long as we do, we will never experience the grace that God wants to give to us. And the season of Lent is all about owning up, not running, not hiding, coming honestly, coming clean, coming in recognition of our need for a Savior. So let's come and let's be honest before the Lord for a few moments right now. Let's confess our sins before the Lord. Let's confess our need for him. Let's confess our brokenness and that his grace alone can save us, his mercy alone because of what Christ has done. If you're here today and you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ to be your forgiver and to be your master, Right now is as good a time as any to do that. You say, God, I need you. I've been running away from you. I've hurt you. I've hurt myself. I've hurt other people. I know that I have committed what the Bible calls sin. I need you, Lord, so help me. I trust in you to be my forgiver, to be my master. Let's take a few minutes to do that right now. Let's take a few minutes to do that. For those of us who are children of God, we're going to come to this table and we're going to come in a... The more we understand our sin, the more this table is going to have significance to us because the bigger we realize the sinner we are, the bigger we're going to see our Savior to be. If I think I'm just kind of bad, then Jesus will be a kind of good Savior. But if I realize that I'm the worst of sinners, then I'll realize that he's the greatest of saviors, the only Savior. So let's pray quietly in our hearts as we commit ourselves to the Lord God. In a moment, I'm going to give an invitation for anyone who wants to put their trust in Jesus. So I want to be on the side of God. There's only two sides. I've been kind of straddling the fence. I want to get on the side of God. After we pray for a couple minutes, I'm going to give an invitation and, and just invite us to pray a prayer that will help us to put our trust in Jesus. But let's come to the Lord on our own for a couple minutes. Just talk to him as we give our hearts to the lover of our souls whose kindness leads us to repentance. Let's pray together.
continue to pray. You know, here and there over the next few weeks during Lent, I'm going to give invitations for people to put their trust in Jesus so that you can know. And if I bring my friends over these next few weeks, they don't know Jesus, they're going to have an opportunity to put their trust in the Lord. But maybe there's some of us in here who understand, man, I've been going to church, but I don't think I'm a child of God right now. I haven't surrendered my life to Jesus. I haven't trusted him to be the forgiver of my sins and and to be my master, and I need him in my life. As we continue to pray, if that describes you, man, I just felt like God was talking to me about that. I don't want to hide anymore, and I don't want to play games anymore. That sounds like you. You need a savior. You need Jesus in your life. As we continue to pray, from where you are, I just want to invite you to raise your hand so that I can see you and, and recognize you. together, I want to just pray a simple prayer. First, for those in here who are making that confession, you want to make that confession to trust Christ. And then after I pray that, I'm just going to pray a prayer over all of us. And then uh, we'll come to this table of grace. Just pray along with me and make this prayer your own. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have loved me in this way, that you have called my name, and I heard your voice calling me, and for many years I ran and I hid because I was afraid and I was ashamed, but today I come to you. I stop hiding and I say, God, I need you now. You sent your son Jesus to do for me what I could not, what nobody could do, and no Buddha No Muhammad, no prophet could ever die for me. And I could certainly not win my way to heaven, earn my way to heaven, and rescue this broken world. I thank you that there was one, a perfect Savior, Jesus, who did. So be my Savior now. Be my Lord. I trust in you to make me who you want me to be. And Father, for the rest in here who may have prayed that prayer before or are still wrestling to know who you are. Pray that you would challenge us, that you would minister to us in personal ways, in practical ways, in order that we might experience more of you in our lives. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.